Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, Sexy Skaters, One-Armed Bandits, SS Caps, and a Keepsake, and a Kiss. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced its long play 33 and a third RPM micro groove record. The next year, RCA Victor introduced a 7 inch 45 RPM record. It was the beginning of a conflict between the full album and a stack of hits. Downloadable music has only increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast makes the case for a deep dive into the satisfaction of listening to the whole album. This is Vinyl Tap. And tonight, we have a big album as usual. This is one that uh, both JM and I have listened to since our youth, just a short time ago. Uh, We're gonna start with JM tonight with the full introduction because I know for a fact he's talked about this album I guess since before college days. J.M., tell us about this record. All right, so the name of this album is Making Moves. This is an album that I've been familiar with uh, since I was a sophomore in college, or sophomore in high school. All right, well, this was one of the first albums I discovered and bought without anybody else's influence. And I did not discover Romeo and Juliet until I bought this album. And I did not realize that it was such a huge hit. I didn't realize that it hit number 18 in the United States. I love struck Romeo Sing the streets of serenade Laying everybody low With a love song that he made this is Dire Straits' third album, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a it was very different than the first two. The the first was Dire Straits, of course, and the second was Communique. And those uh, the band and the sound was completely the same. Then this album came out, and it was entirely new. What happened to make that sound change so much? This was the first album made without Mark Knopfler's brother, David. I don't know if David really added that much to their sound, but he primarily a keyboardist from what I understand. And he just really wasn't into playing guitar that much. So they went into the recording studio doing the the demos for it. Mark Knopfler hears Because the Night by Patti Smith and realizes that it was co-written by Bruce Springsteen and he just loved that sound and the producer on it was Jimmy Iovine who probably comes up a lot in this podcast he's he was part of he was pretty much ubiquitous as a producer late 70s early 80s he really liked bringing in his own guys to make his own sound so he brought in Roy Bitten from the E Street band and Roy Bitten plays all the keyboard parts on this this album Let's talk about this producer, Jimmy Iovine, a little bit, because um, it seems like as soon as he gets into somebody 
they start putting out a bigger noise. Mm -hmm. uh, like Bruce Springsteen, it's Born to Run, the pretenders for Jackson Brown. But just to name a few, he's Stevie Nicks, Tom Petty, U2, and the, the sound uh, you can tell right away is something brand new. So, you know, I'm, I'm relatively new to this album. I've heard the hits, but I didn't really start listening to it a lot until we decided to do it. Um, and this album, to me, sounds, and this is not a knock, so don't take it as that, it's Dire Straits doing a Springsteen album. There's Springsteen sound all over this album, and I don't know if that's because of Jimmy Iovine. I don't know if it's because of uh, Roy Benton, but I mean, it's and people talk about uh, talk about Romeo and Juliet sounding like the guitar part sounding like the piano part for um, Jungle Land. derivative but it's definitely influenced by it but it's not just that song if you listen to the first song if you listen to tunnel of love um you know it starts off with that carousel waltz thing and then it goes into this this descending piano kind of arpeggio thing that could not be more springsteen sounding um i think the whole album has that has, feels like a springsteen album but done by dire straits again that's not a knock I think I actually think the lyrics are better on this than anything Springsteen was doing at the time. It's just interesting because I, I, I was listening to this album and I heard it, I was like, God, this reminds me of something. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it reminds me of, of Jungle Land. And then I heard that arpeggio thing. I said, God, it sounds like Springsteen. And I was listening to the kind of the, the themes of the songs and it sounded very Springsteenish, Springstonian, whatever the word is. If Roy Benton and, and Jimmy Ivan uh, are like this package. Here's here's what's uh, interesting though. So Jimmy Ivan produced three up to this point produced three or engineered three Springsteen albums: Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town, and The River, right? Um, which of course Roy Benton played on all of those. Inter here's a little uh, interesting fact: uh, it was an engineer. Yeah, yeah. This this album, Making Movies, was released on the exact same day that the river was released. But I read it uh, just real quick. I read an interview with Roy Benton and he's talking about how any, they could have gotten any keyboard player to do this stuff, but they wanted someone with a certain sound, which says to me that I think Mark Knopfler was kind of looking to make that kind of a record. I wonder, did he play on the Patty Smith deal? Yeah, I think he did play on the Patty Smith deal. I think that was, that was part of it. You know, you mentioned how it sounds like a Springsteen record. To me, it almost sounds more like a Tom Petty record because right, one of the, the drummer is Pick Withers, who, if you listen to his drumming on the first two albums, they're, they're very intricate. There's a little more play in what he's doing. And I've read that Jimmy Iovine hates that. He likes having just a straight sort of drum sound. So 
also, I think another thing is the drums seem to be just a little more subdued than they've been in the past. I, I, I'm like you. When this album came out, I listened to it over and over and over again, forever, forever, and forever. But I've, I've had it uh, put away for a little while. And the first thing that hit me when I started listening to it again was the drums, uh, mm. especially on Tunnel of Love, but some of the others were like the drummer got released and was able to do some things he hadn't done before. And it, it, I was hearing drums more than Knopfler's guitar uh, really? on some of this. Yeah, it was really, um, I think this album depends less on Knopfler as a guitar player. do Romeo and Juliet you could do a couple of these songs without him playing guitar but the, I, but the guitar adds such texture to those songs oh I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest doing that at all <laughs> but if you listen to uh, if you take the guitar off of uh, the first album mm. you'll have those are nice songs but it, it, it's almost all gone if you take the guitar out but this thing with uh, some of the other things going on, it it could survive losing, I think, Romeo, uh, Juliet, um, Hand in Hand. A lot of these songs could be done without the guitar and they'd still make it. I would, I would hate to hear the guitar go away because I love the guitar, but... album I think that they've ever done. You could possibly say that um, Love Over Gold or next one, the songs kind of all kind of meld together a little bit more, but the way that this album is just sequenced, the, the carousel waltz. And well, let's talk about that a little bit. That's uh, at the beginning of uh, Tunnel of Love, yeah, which is over eight minutes long. Springsteen had him a carnival album too with the Wild Innocent and East Street Shuffle. Tunnel of Love, I think, is the best piece of music on the album. He, he when he was growing up, he would go to this place called the Spanish City that was a carnival, and it had a profound effect on him. And I, I learned that now uh, that's still open, and and every day before they. They uh, open up the gates. They play Tunnel of Love with our strength. So. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's pretty sure. cool. He was really, he was interviewed, and he was really proud of that. That's one of those magical places uh, when he was a kid. And I think he really pulls that, he pulls that song off. Uh, there's no question what he's talking about. Yeah, it's it's a little more personal than most of his songs. 
most yeah. most of his songs are that what I call observational songwriting, where he's right. like a guy in the room writing down like money for nothing. He's he's sitting there listening to those guys in the appliance store <laughs> talk about MTV, and he's writing down. He asks for a piece of paper and a pen. He starts writing down everything they say, and he gets well, his biggest hit song. And of course, Sultan's a swing. He walks into a bar, and uh, he just writes down. It's really an ironic song. But well, you know, he he started off as a reporter. Yeah, I still oh, well, that, that, reporter. Well, that that makes sense. The Les Boys is the same way. He, he the band was evidently in Berlin and and uh, happened upon that scene, and that's what he wrote about. These boys' dreams of Jean Genet, high heel shoes and a blackberry, and the posters on the wall that say he's not writing outside of himself on Tunnel of Love. He's 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 there. He's the uh, protagonist in that song. One of those high school songs that you listen to and you start dreaming that you're Mark Knopfler playing the guitar and <laughs> every girl that uh, you wanted to date that didn't date you is in the audience gnashing her teeth because she missed her chance. Um, absolutely love that tune. Never get tired of it. But isn't that the same with Romeo and Juliet? I read someplace that that was also semi-autobiographical it was about a relationship he was in with a girl who was i guess using him for for her own gain i he, the, the interview i saw he was in new york and he got the west side story bug um uh, a little well bit. there you go okay. there's springsteen again if you want to continue that thing because that's what <laughs> happened to him on jungle land i think the idea of west side story is more powerful than no. the actual thing i hate that <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. So wait a minute. So Jungle Land is also influenced by West Side Story. Are you kidding me? So that's what's interesting about. Well, that's, that's fine. What's interesting about that because that's the one song where people say that guitar intro on Romeo and Juliet sounds like the piano intro on on Jungle Land. Well, that's Roy Bitton's first Springsteen album. You know, he was asked to be a, a member, a full-time member of the band. Is that God. right? Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah, that's a according to an inter hit. according to an interview with him. Uh, they liked him so much after this album, they asked him to join the band. See, I think that he is confident. Oh yeah, and I think he serves songs well. But I think, like Doug, I think he's one of just one of the most boring keyboard players in the world and i but i think he did great on this album because this album didn't need anything but a competent keyboard player when alan clark joined i thought that their keyboard playing the the albums became much more interesting in their keyboard department but if you if you buy my my goofy theory about this being a dire straight springsteen album his influence on it is significantly more than his playing i guess yeah yeah well he did become a producer not long after this you know I feel like he's sort of like a PTA mom that's in the room <laughs> with all the kids saying, okay, let's get a little more in line here. And uh, He does that on all the records. Uh, and with a guy like Springsteen, you can't civilize Springsteen. Jam, you, you're, you, when you're talking about the guitar part being fairly, I guess, fairly subdued, the interesting thing is when his brother left, he came in and re-recorded all of his brother's parts. The story that I heard was they had recorded a lot of the album. They had rehearsed it 
Mark Knopfler had kind of produced it. And then David said he didn't want to be in the band anymore, uh, which is surprising. He wasn't fired. He just said he didn't want to keep playing in the band anymore. And so Jimmy Iovine came in. Mark Knopfler decided just to re-record all David's guitar parts. And there's no explanation about why. Because I always thought he was a pretty good guitar player. Did did they have a falling out? But I mean, it seems never, like kind of a jerk move, if you ask me. <laughs> David Knopfler did some uh, solo albums after that. Mark even produced some of his albums. I don't think it was a falling out. One of the things I heard is that David wanted to play keyboards more, and Mark really wasn't into that. So well, it's like uh, it's like so he got Simon. a big keyboard player right when he left. Right, exactly. <laughs> this thing went double platinum in uh, England, and yeah, it took forever for it to get uh, even gold in the United States. Yeah, and now I believe it's over 30 million albums sold. One yeah. of the things I did not real, realize was just how absolutely gigantic Dire Straits became. Um, I got to tell my Dire Straits story, which was I was driving in the car in the back seat. Uh, my, I wasn't driving. My mom was driving. <laughs> <laughs> I've had dreams where I wake up and I've been driving. I'm in the back seat taking a nap. After. That's another story. Um <laughs> My mom's driving me around, and uh, I guess this is 1978 or something, and uh, Dire Straits comes on the radio, and it's Sultan's a Swing, and I had never heard anything like that in my entire life, that that Stratocaster that he's playing with his fingers, and uh, I just beg her to take me to Sound Warehouse right then and there, and, and I, you know, that's back when the record was seven bucks, which was a lot of money to a kid and i guess i was junior high or high school but i bought that record and just wore it out and never heard anything like that before yeah like, I, i'd read i'd read someplace they were the biggest british band in the 80s selling over a hundred million albums mark knopfler said that's why he uh, he ended dire straits he's his quote it says if anybody can tell me something good about fame i'd sure be interested to hear it uh, <laughs> that's interesting and then now he he just loves doing these uh, smaller shows. He did the soundtrack, one of the greatest movies ever, too. Princess Bride, yeah. He started doing. That's when he started getting into all those. Um, yeah, yeah. Local Heroes. He did Local Hero about this time, too. That's 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 a fantastic soundtrack. All right. The, uh, just just real quick, because we're called this is Vinyl Tap. Uh, I have to say this. I, I don't know if the, the, the if this is a true story or not, but I'd always heard. That one of the one of the things that Mark Knopfler insisted upon if he was going to do the soundtrack for um, the Princess Bride was that the Marty DeBerge hat Reiner wore in Spinal Tap would be in the movie. And if you watch the movie, it's hanging on the wall behind the kid in the bed. Um, so. That's there we are, Tony's tidbits. He came <laughs> again, ladies and gentlemen. What's the best song on this album? Come on best song on his album there's, there's just it, it's got everything it, it's got your slow parts got your fast parts it's got your earnest vocals and the guitar solo on this song is one of my all-time favorite guitar solos when I Yeah. And it yeah. doesn't 
So I was really trying to get you to say that Romeo and Juliet was your favorite song so that you would say it's a, it's a great song and it'll, it'll just make you boohoo so that we could have, <laughs> have five in a row with a crying comment from jm well romeo and juliet is a fine song and i could see more sensitive people boohoo into that one but um no that that's a that's a fine <laughs> fine song. you know the, the amazing thing about tunnel of love is it's Eight plus minutes and does not feel like that at does all. Not at all. Unlike at all. unlike Layla, which feels like. <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard Mark Knopfler, kid, I assumed he was an American, and I assumed he was an older guy, <laughs> probably at least forties, and and his voice sounds like a full grown man. And then you turn on the TV with the MTV, and he's got his little headband on, and he's jumping around like Joe King Carrasco or something. And it just, I couldn't stand it. I could not stand to see him. Uh, and so I always just kind of got this idea he was probably a jerk or something like that. And then I'm watching all these interviews with him, and he seems like the most humble, uh, yeah. nice guy. And he, he's, he will not talk about himself as some kind of guitar god or anything like that. And he just talks about how much he loves his job and how how he just is is really happy that everything's worked out for him. I found out the sweat band came because people were writing him notes when he was playing. He's sweating all over the and they didn't like it, so he decided he sure, to wear the sweat band. Sure, it wasn't and another Springsteen thing. <laughs> I think he had that before Springsteen did. Oh, he started wearing sweatbands on his arms too, so that it the sweat yeah. wouldn't drip down on his fingers while he was. Uh, and he said, "You he know, the, see. The, the amazing thing about him not uh, about being so humble, uh, aside from him re-recording his brother's parts, which seems again like a jerk move, uh, he's he is a great guitarist, and and unlike oh, any okay. other person who plays that instrument, you know, there's uh, which which is really I think." Uh, the sign of a good guitarist or a great guitarist he, is someone who's got a signature sound that you could pick up. Daniel, tell us a bit, little bit about that hammer cloth style that he does. Yeah, he does that kind of strange. Um, it's it's almost a banjo style that the, the way that he plays it, and he plays with two fingers and a thumb. He rarely uses a pick. He uses a pick on um, Expresso, Expresso Love. Expresso Love, yeah. And he plays that Gibson SG on it. But he basically plants his two fingers on the fretboard and just does this kind of a banjo roll, everything that he plays. And if you ever see him play, just watch him play really close up, he never stops playing. So everything that he's, those those fingers never stop playing. But you Half the time you can't hear. He, he just does these little tasty licks, but he's actually muting the strings while he's playing. He just keeps his fingers going, huh. and it's, it's it's amazing. He just had, he, and he's just he's gotten to this point where he just keeps his fingers rolling the same way, uh, almost like a claw hammer banjo style. And he um, just when he's not. Pl if you don't hear a note, it's because he's muting the strings. And then when he, even his solos, it's just, they're, they look exactly the same. It's deceptively difficult. And he is by far my favorite guitar player ever. He's just, um, there's no 
there's no mistaking a Mark Knopfler guitar part. Um, he rarely plays more than like three or four strings at a time. Um, and the reason I heard that he learned that style was he kept losing picks. And every Something every else. guitar player in the world understands uh, that problem. Uh, hopefully <laughs> in heaven we'll all be reunited with our picks and our socks. Now, now the influences include, uh, is it H Hank Marvin from the, the yeah. Shadows? I learned the shadows. that. Uh, yeah. And I've always thought that he was influenced by J.J. Kale, but I, it sure sounds like it. I'm not sure. It sure I can does. It that. does sound like he's got that that tone. He's definitely got a J.J. Kale tone, I would say. Just very clean. Now, he switched his guitar sound, and he started getting his guitars custom-made by Paul Reed Smith. And It was Hank Mar Marvin that got him aching for a red Stratocaster. There's a pretty good story about how his dad got him a a fake Stratocaster and he knew how much money it set him back. So he was afraid to ask him for an amp. So <laughs> he figured out a way to plug it into his radio, <laughs> which he eventually blew up. But, um, <laughs> I'd say that dad was pretty smart. That was a good investment. <clears throat> yep. Well, Tony, there's some people that weren't even alive in, uh, the, uh, in, during the time this album came out, and we like to include them too. So, <laughs> could, could you tell us what the kids are listening to today? Well, I want to talk about an album that I should have mentioned significantly earlier um, in these recommendations, and that's an album by a band that I absolutely adore called The Long Riders. It's an album recorded, uh, released last year in 2019 called Psychedelic Country Soul. Here's the interesting thing about this. This band was one of my favorite bands in the 80s. They released three albums. The last album they released was in 87. And then it, 32 years later, they put this album out. And it, it I kid you not, it sounds like they didn't miss a beat. It's, it's just fantastic. Take me down to the only one that feels that way the reviews were all significantly positive about this album and saying the same thing that it sounds like the best thing the band's ever done um i guess taking 32 years off uh, really really helped great 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 album um and i highly highly recommend it call it's called psychedelic country soul because it's uh they were they were part of the uh what was known as the paisley underground scene in la in the 80s they were they were less less psychedelic and much more kind of Graham Parsons-esque country rock. Um, but this album has a little bit of that sound, uh, a little bit of psychedelia, some slightly blues stuff, some folk stuff. Um, but it's definitely got a country flavor to it. Highly, highly recommended. Well, I have exciting news for all of our fans. Uh, we are now on every continent on Earth except for Antarctica and Africa. So all right. if, if you could please contact all of your friends on Antarctica and Africa <laughs> and ask them to tune in so that we could claim to be a complete podcast. All right, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, we are going to be considering a classic debut album by a big band or a band that became big eventually. 
The Police, their debut album, Outlandos D'Amour. Please give us a shout out on Facebook and look us up on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. I think we're on iHeartRadio now. We're also on Twitter these days at this is vinyl tap at tapping vinyl. You can also email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Leave us a note or tell us what albums you'd like us to take a look at. We also want to give a shout out to our friends in Clichy, France, Centennial, Colorado, and Lake Stevens, Washington. We appreciate you downloading us. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, me, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, your humble producer, continue to take a deep dive into the LPs.